Hello and welcome. This is Heartstock Radio. I'm your host, Carol Murphy, and Daniel Hogan is in the studio. This week, we have a repeat guest, uh, which we always love to catch up with our former guests. Chris Bennett is the founder of Technology Innovation Law. He's in Washington, D.C. As you can probably hear, there's a little inner city traffic that will crop up in our interview here. And we're going to talk all about Chris and, gosh, living inside the Beltway. That's a whole conversation in and of itself. In just a moment, we shall be back with Christopher Bennett of Technology Innovation Law. This is Hardstock. Thanks for listening. You're listening to Heartstock Radio. I'm your host, Carol Murphy, and Daniel Hogan is in the studio. Our guest this week is Chris Bennett, and he is the founder of Technology Innovation Law, or TIL for short. Hi, Chris. How are you? Um, Very well, Carol. Thanks for asking. And how are things for you in uh, Montana? Well, it's so nice to get to update and catch up with you, Chris. Montana is interesting for sure, probably not as interesting as all that you got going on there in D.C. Having lived in D.C. myself, it's a whole different ball of wax, as we like to say in Montana. We've entered winter. We got our our first snowstorm here, and we've just had a spectacularly beautiful fall. How are things there in D.C.? Well, in D.C., We transitioned into fall, and it's very pleasant. And being inside the Beltway is is not so distracting if you don't let uh, some of the business and political things distract you. So, <laughs> yes, and therein lie would be the challenge for me because um, I'm. It's kind of like. Uh, bees drawn to honey for me. And I've really noticed that I've had to, for my own mental health and well-being, limit my exposure. (laughs) (laughs) So let's just kind of start out with an introduction here from Inside the Beltway to your enterprise. What is TIL and why did you found it? Well, Carol, that's a Great transition question because TIL is what allows me to stay focused on something other than the pursuits of the District of Columbia as the nation's capital. It is intended to disrupt structural barriers to innovation uh, by historically marginalized and underrepresented communities. Our data show those are typically uh, people without financial means or limited means women, people of color, people in rural areas, and also youth. And the idea is to empower them with the awareness of intellectual property rights, which are the product of the mind, and anyone can innovate. And the intent is to help them create their own financial value using their their natural ability to innovate. And it's been stimulated by a experience that I had at a family funeral where my, my brother had 
died and we were discussing, you know, family things that is people often do after a funeral. And my sister remarked that I had an uncle who had uh, written a hit song, but received no credit or compensation for it back in the 60s. And in research, I found that if, if the family lore was correct, that song would have been worth over a million dollars to him in 60s terms. But because he did not understand uh, intellectual property rights, he was one of 13 kids born to two farmers in Chesterfield, South Carolina. He, he received no compensation, no royalties, and no generational wealth to pass on. Mm-hmm. So that family stimulus, along with my background and knowledge in uh, law and technology, prompted me to pursue designing uh, technology generation law, or TIL as the trademark states, and to address that problem both locally in the U.S. and also globally in support of the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals for 2030. Yes, and I'm hoping we can delve deeply into kind of an update in where you're at now, how things have changed since we last spoke. But before we go there, let's talk about, well, I guess Georgetown Law. I noticed that that's where you had gone to law school. Can you talk a little bit about your experiences? What led you there? Did you move to D.C. just to go to law school at Georgetown Law? In fact, I did. And, and to do a bit of location hopping very quickly, I moved to D.C. to attend Georgetown Law, relocating from Miami, Florida, where I was working for a Deloitte consulting firm at the time. And this whole thing was a part of a longer term career plan where I looked at the background of some notable figures in the Senate and found that there were some that had a background in both business, uh, graduate studies, as well as the law. So uh, I had moved to Miami from Philadelphia, where I went and earned an an MBA degree. I had moved to Philadelphia from Charlotte, North Carolina, because I'm a native Charlottean. So I've I've moved around a bit for education and for professional purposes. And uh, Georgetown Law School was the culmination of the formal education, but it also was an opportunity where I got to go to law school at night and work during the day. And that's quite a reality check. Yeah. (laughs) Well, having uh, kind of done the same thing in dental school, and mind you, no one worked in dental school. (laughs) It just wasn't (laughs) something. And, you know, I'm sure that's the, the case with going to law school. I mean, the demands are, it makes my head spin even thinking about it. What was that like? And did you have some culture shock in D.C. when you moved there? And, and I think it, the experience for me was different because we actually have team members now that are in or recently finished law school. And they typically do a day program, which takes three years. And in the evening program, it took me four and a half. Mm. And during the day, I worked for a, a telecommunications company in different positions. And so I did not have the close interpersonal relationship with some of the other students because I was going to and from work, but it did help me with time management and staying focused and on task. So that was demanding, but fulfilling. And uh, the process of being here and being able to pursue those goals and to, to achieve them, that was also pretty fulfilling. And how about your experiences with DC itself and kind of being, like we said before, inside the Beltway, 
Did that kind of change your your reference or your mindset at all? How did that impact you? It actually, I would say it enhanced it. Um, I actually also worked for the district government, by the way, and I say that because it gave me a chance uh, for a time to get experience of what it's like to try to deliver services to constituents and citizens, and also being a resident here of what it's like to receive those services and be satisfied or dissatisfied. Yeah, and, and there's always seemed to have been kind of this conflict or pain point between the citizens of the District of Columbia and the federal government and citizens not really being represented. Is that accurate? Mm. That, that is accurate. And indeed, that is a bit of a travesty uh, in America that we do have a group of citizens that don't have, for example, uh, a representative that can vote in, in open session uh, comparable to the other areas of the country and or, or have someone that is in a position to to actually represent the tax dollars that the citizens of the district pay to the government. You know, it definitely it's a hope that that would get resolved because it's just patently uh, unjust. Yeah, uh, undemocratic. And, <laughs> yeah. And living here and having worked in government, I would say that the overall life, quality of life of district citizens is comparable to any other major city, that uh, the federal government's presence does create some complexity just from a geographic and, and coordination and jurisdiction perspective. And it also creates uh, some disenfranchisement because of the, the fact we don't have a voting representative. And so there's a committee in Congress that actually oversees the district. That makes it a little bit challenging. The benefit, though, is it is one of the most cosmopolitan, diverse areas in which I've lived. And the people are generally amazing, just like folks around the country. You know, you have some folks that are a bit ill-behaved, some folks that are outstanding and angelic, uh, but most of the folks are just hardworking folks trying to get things done in a positive way. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that still strikes me, and maybe things have changed because it has been a while since I lived there, is the huge gap, the even more starkly noticeable gap between the haves and the have-nots because some of the poorest neighborhoods I had ever seen juxtaposed next to this huge federal complex of the mall and all of the wealth that goes along with the seat of our federal government. Has that changed much or is that still the case? Your recollection is very much in the right direction. There is, in fact, it's actually relevant to what I'm doing today. Southeast D.C. and D.C. is described as quadrants. So if you can imagine, there are two streets, North Capitol and South Capitol run north-south. And then uh, there are Pennsylvania Avenue and other streets basically run kind of east-west. In the southeast quadrant is where a large part of the federal government, the uh, legislature, is located. But also if you cross through Anacostia River, which is a little bit of a dividing point in the district, there's significant economic challenge, uh, relatively poor neighborhoods. So it's appalling when you have that dichotomy, that separation. But I think we're seeing the citizens try to do better and we're seeing the city, some of the wealth becoming more dispersed. But that's balanced by the fact that also there's a gentrification where as people bring investment dollars and improve neighborhoods, the increase in tax base is forcing folks who may have been there a while but can't afford to pay those additional tax dollars to have to leave. 
So there are challenges in trying to deal with wealth in equity distribution. And uh, one of the first areas we sought to serve at TIL was our idea was to support entrepreneurs that were marginalized and underrepresented communities in Southeast DC because we could see the disparity there. And we saw the ability to create and innovate as being in that neighborhood and also a resource that could take advantage of something like intellectual property rights and use it to pursue their aspirations. Mm-hmm. And let's just define intellectual property rights. If I've never patented or trademarked anything, why is this important and who are your services for? Kind of, you know, heads up, let's spark that need, I guess. Maybe Mm -hmm. some folks just like your uncle don't realize how important this is. Excellent transition question, Carol. And I would first suggest folks, look at the United States Constitution, go to Article 1, Section 8, Clause 8, and I'm going to paraphrase how it reads. It basically reads that if you have the ability to invent or to create useful ideas, then you get, for a limited time, a monopoly on those things. So you can kind of control them. Uh, And I would just say to all the listeners, if this was so important that the founders of our country facing the possibility of execution for revolting against the British crown thought they wanted to put it in the document, it was probably pretty important. And that is the genesis of intellectual property rights, where the framers said, hey, we want to make sure we have innovation in our founding documents. And that led to the four uh, existing traditional forms of intellectual property rights. The uh, patent is the invention piece that they mentioned. Trademark is a way to create a reputation for your business so that customers know you and know your brand and have expectations and relationship. Copyright covers creative expression. Uh, There are 16 forms of copyright, ranging from map making or cartography to mime and to traditional things like music, the images that you take in social media, people use those kind of things. And then there's trade secret, which in essence, to oversimplify, it needs to be something that's useful in commerce, in business in the market, and you need to take reasonable means to keep it a secret. And someone may say, what the heck is that? Dial up Coca-Cola or Kentucky Fried Chicken, and they'll talk to you about their trade secrets and how there are things that have created value for their shareholders. Mm. The kernel secret recipe. Yes, ma'am. 11 <laughs> herbs and spices, I think. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Bingo, that was like my first job in high school. That's kind of triggered all that. Anyhow, let's take our little break here and we'll be right back with Chris Bennett and we'll delve into kind of an update on your enterprise and see where we're at. This is Hardstock. I'm your host, Carol Murphy. We'll be right back with Chris Bennett. This is Heartstock Radio. 
Thanks for listening and welcome back. We're speaking with Chris Bennett and getting an update on his enterprise technology innovation law. Chris, what is going on now? Do you have any updates for Mm -hmm. us? Any kind of exciting turns of events? I do have updates and and I will shamelessly admit that each step of progress we make is exciting to me. So I'm kind of biased. Uh, I think the first to set the baseline Our vision was to use intellectual property rights, raise awareness amongst everyone that we can reach out to, but in particular, use resources to reach out to the historically marginalized and underrepresented, to give them access to different options to pursue intellectual property rights, whether do it themselves or with some help, offer an affordable service that was 50% or less than the market comparables, and then to work with them to achieve value in their terms uh, at the end of that process. And we quantified that by saying by 2030, uh, we wanted to help 2.7 million entrepreneurs create $5.4 billion of their own financial value. Since uh, our interview, we did our social impact check. And at the end of 2021, we assisted 74 clients and we estimated they created 1.8 million of their own financial value. So that's about $20,000 on a per client basis. And uh, we were doing that basically on the internet and using portals for government. Since then, we developed a software solution that's called a minimum viable product. Uh, it was, uh, we were selected to participate in the NASDAQ milestone maker program. So they put our logo up in Times Square on the, uh, on the NASDAQ tower, and uh, we validated our customer market fit, we found that we were reaching the market that we wanted, that while what we do is available to all, we found that about 95% of our clients are people of color, 60% are women, 50% are small business or startups, 25% are creatives, 25% are in social impact, the age range is from seven to, we think, 67 plus, but you know, we wouldn't ask them their, their age. That would be inappropriate. And uh, they're located mostly in the U.S., but we also have some clients in Asia and in Africa. So with the current version, we, we're serving the market that we desire, and, and we've managed to do that as a bootstrap and stay profitable since 2019. And now with the software, we're trying to... Um, reach out to other resources and to, to grow and, and to meet our target goal of the 2.7 million entrepreneurs supported by 2030 and helping them to create 5.4 billion of their value. And as an entrepreneur, can you help us understand, you know, if, if I'm needing your services, how would I avail myself to them? How does it work? I'll give you... A direct example, and it's a client that we've actually taken through the entire cycle. Typically, we get our clients from referrals. Uh, so we haven't done any, any formal marketing other than once we tried a crowdfunding program. We got so much response that we didn't do the crowdfunding. We, we just raised the money through serving clients. So um, we would meet the client or they would be referred to us. Uh, and once we meet them, we want to understand what are their aspirations? 
and find out if we have what they need to pursue those aspirations. And if we don't, we will refer them to someone else that we know that we think could help if that's of interest to them. Uh, if what they aspire to do can benefit from intellectual property, then we'll make them aware of the options that might fit their particular interests, whether it's they want to be a social media influencer, whether it's someone that has a unique farming method or a unique uh, agricultural method that they want to protect, uh, whether it's someone that's just starting a business and they want to sell on Amazon's platform and they want to build a brand, or whether it's someone that's they're just naturally creative and they want to use poetry or their ability to take photos to realize their aspirations. So we give them the advice on different ways to pursue that. And if they'd like us to work with them, then we'll offer them our service at an affordable right price. And we also have a promotion called Pay What You Can, which literally is Pay What You Can, with the requirement that if you realize some financial value, you will agree to donate some portion of the proceeds back to the platform to help others. And then that last piece is we use technology and we also use matching from our network to match them with resources to help them realize a financial result in their own terms. One example of that is we had uh, some clients who were three physician friends and two uh, business friends in the healthcare space. Uh, we worked with them early on, like two years ago. And uh, now they've asked us to come back and help them. And they're looking at selling their business for $40 million. So they've gone through the entire cycle of working with us. And we're trying to help them realize value in their terms uh, in that sale. Mm. Any team members or partners you'd like to give a shout out to? I would like to shout out to actually just our entire community, Carol, because what we've found is from universities that we work with to the National Science Foundation for doing research to um, our clients themselves, which we all, I think we have about 110 clients to uh, different organizations like 1863 Ventures, which is a funding source, or uh, the NASDAQ Milestone Maker Program. They've just been essential, and it takes a community. If you're a wise entrepreneur, uh, especially if you're trying to do it on a bootstrap basis with your own resources to achieve what we've been able to do. And, you know, we're looking forward to reaching out and expanding our community to your audience and others to try to achieve our goal. Because we think it not only helps the entrepreneurs that we can connect, but their ideas are things that can be shared with others around the world and can help address a lot of these issues that we have on a global basis that are mentioned in the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals for 2030. And the NASDAQ Milestone Program, can you talk more about that? It, that sounds very intriguing. Oh, it's extremely cool. Um, the stock market NASDAQ has a not-for-profit arm called the Entrepreneurial Center. And they have a number of programs that they will allow organizations to apply. And I think for a Milestone Maker, they, they said that their acceptance rate was about 10%. But the idea is, you will sign up for a challenge that you have to meet in about three months. And it's basically you're kind of hanging the wallpaper, so to speak. If you meet the challenge, they will give you recognition. So the things that we do now, uh, we get recognition on their, their board in Times Square, and they're going to help us to amplify 
the work that we do. And it was an amazing group that I think touched key areas of American life and global life from a, another startup called Ag Tools that uses artificial intelligence to help agriculture and farmers find the right markets and get optimal profits to one developing building blocks that are more sustainable, but also more durable that would stand up to stronger weather conditions like the recent hurricane in Florida. And just a number of other startups comparable to uh, TIL, there were eight of us. And it's just amazing community that they create and also uh, expanding the network to help organizations grow and succeed in pursuit of their missions. So we were honored to be uh, selected for that and recommended for it and to actually achieve our milestone, which allowed us to realize the benefits from the program. Mm -hmm. And we've got a couple minutes left. I'm hoping we can touch upon anything exciting that you have coming up for the future events or anything that you can share. Uh, Direct answer is yes, and I'm going to hit three, although they're we're we're fortunate and we're moving in the right direction. There there's actually more than that. One is uh, we were nominated for the Clinton Global Initiative. We did not win, but some of the reviewers saw enough value of what we did as they've uh, they've arranged for us to for a couple of our people to go to Abu Dhabi in the United Arab Emirates, and there's a ten thousand person global media congress in November. And uh, our team members will be telling our story, working with the the Congress members to uh, explain to them how what we do could be of interest to them and their audience, and uh, also making a few pitches on our behalf. That's exciting for us. Uh, We also have uh, our minimum viable product, the software piece, will launch uh, later this year. We'd love to have folks test it. Uh, and give us their feedback. We want to make sure that it's it's helpful in meeting their needs. Uh, and then uh, the third that's coming up this year is we'll be making our first presentation to prospective angel investors who might want to put in some resources to help us grow and, and serve more people around the world. And that's as a part of the Norfolk State University uh, Innovation Center. So those are, are three exciting developments, but uh, there are many others. And one of the cool aspects about it is we actually tell and amplify our client stories when we have their permission. So we have a portfolio of clients where we're actually sharing what they've done and what they're doing with uh, the audience because it, it is amazing to see the innovation that uh, mm-hmm. these folks are coming up with. And how might folks find you if they'd like to learn more? A couple of means to, to reach me out. One is if you're on the LinkedIn platform, uh, I'm there as Christopher Bennett. Uh, you could also reach us um, through t-i-l-groupgroup.com. That's our legal tech website. And then we actually do have a number of social media presences that we can make available. Uh, I will say that uh, we welcome connections with folks and even if we don't have what they need, we want to help them to succeed because we believe in the, the rising tide lifts all boats approach. And on that, I'll mention one thing very briefly. There's research from the United States Patent and Trademark Office and also from inventtogether.org that if we can get more people who haven't had a chance to participate in innovation to do so, 
it could add $1 trillion of additional gross domestic product to the United States economy annually. And that's a, those are jobs and benefits for everyone, so not just uh, the new innovators. So we're, we're highly motivated in pursuing our mission. And thanks again for being on Heartstock, Chris. Yeah, I'm very inspired each time we talk. Well, Carol, thank you so much to you and, and to Heartstock for the invitation. And you know, look forward to next steps and applaud your pursuing your mission. Mm-hmm. We shall be back next week, as always. Until then, peace. And on the sign it no trespassing. Heartstock Radio is a production of KBMF 102.5 Butte America Radio. Hear our programs every Friday at 5 p.m. Mountain Standard Time via live stream at butteamericaradio.org. Hear me, it's